listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. In episode 28, Niels and our lord and blogmaster David will be speaking to writer and Chasmosaurs contributor emeritus Arsha Elbine about his new book, co-written with Cindy Sirwa Collins, Dinosaurs and Other Ancient Animals of the Big Bend, published earlier this year by Texas University Press. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Prehistoric Animals, The Extraordinary Story of Life Before Man, written by Ellis Owen and published by Octopus in 1975. But first, in our new and improved, that is to say, much more informal news section, um, what <laughs> glad tidings of great joy have you for us, Niels? Yeah, I've got some follow-up from uh, from the previous episode. If you remember, we uh, did an item on Dinosaurium by Donna Braginetz, and we had some questions which uh, Donna herself actually went and answered for us. Uh, she has been known to Excellent. comment on the blog. You can read her comments on the uh, show notes of episode 27, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you. So this is Donna. This really made my week. Thank you for the kind remarks about Dinosaurium. Why, you're welcome. I feel flattered to be included in peak 90s paleo art. Here are some replies to various topics brought up during the podcast. Uh, number one, concerning the lateral view. We, uh, we did comment on that a bit. Uh, for me, it was less dogmatic and more a relief, a quick way to get lots of animals on the page while burning out as few brain cells as possible. In the early 90s, I was working on this book during 1992, reliable resource materials were hard to come by. Museum mounts were outdated. <laughs> yeah, we all know that. <laughs> they always are. We, we, we did say this, to be fair. Yeah, like, we, we did. We, and this was still uh, the pre-internet, even the pre-email era. I don't think I'd attended yeah. an SVP meeting yet, and even Jurassic Park and the dinosaur mating list was months away. Some days I would have given my pinky finger for a top or frontal view of a skull. Predatory Dinosaurs of the World and Dinosaurs Past and Present, Volume 2, with their beautiful Greg Paul skeletals, were like gifts from the gods. Well, uh, very appropriate that we should uh, talk about this book in conjunction with Matt Dempsey's work, because he makes exactly this stuff for exactly this reason, right? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's point one. Point two, I'm glad you like the camouflage page. It's my favorite. I think we can all agree with that. It's everyone's favorite. Yeah, it's the absolutely. best. Yep. <laughs> Uh, number three, you wondered if I'd been discouraged from putting feathers on dinosaurs, like uh, Louise Ray has been. Not at all. My restorations have always been conservative. Greg Paul was knowledgeable enough to push the envelope. I was not. The Chinese feathered dinosaurs were still years away. It's true. Well, thanks for your honest reply. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And no one expects anyone to have been producing feathered dinosaurs at that time. No. Really. So it's remarkable if anyone did. So yeah, yeah it enough. was an exp it it was an opportunity, of course, to make like uh, Louise Ray and go like, yes, yes, of course, I would have put feathers on them, but uh, you know, the publishers wouldn't let. Oh, me, I was repressed. I was repressed. No press. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm quite oppressed. <laughs> censored or censored, yeah. censored. Let's just say censored. So thanks for your honesty. No, indeed, exactly. Sorry, Louise, we love you. <laughs> yes, we do very much. But but on on uh, the subject of Donna's reply, this really confirms what we were saying about just uh, how extraordinary her ability was, because these being the days 
before everything that we're now familiar with. And even as Donna said, the Jurassic Park was months away. <laughs> you know, this is, we, we didn't even have, Donna didn't even have the influence of that film um, on her work. Uh, but it's, you know, it stands out among um, peak 90s dinosaur artwork, as we've been saying. So really, yeah, that's just... probably a good thing that she didn't, to be honest. <laughs> no, exactly. No, exactly. But yeah, but really it just confirms just how good her work was. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, number four, I don't recall what I used as a reference for the Allosaurus head. I think Mark suggested it might have been a, a museum mount. Uh, AMNH, yeah, but uh, she doesn't recall. Number five, yep, Dinosaurium is a safe and inviting Mesozoic landscape. This is something I brought up. I don't care for gore, especially when the intended audience is younger kids. Hmm. I'm afraid Donna and I have to agree to disagree here. Ooh. <laughs> Children love gore. <laughs> Give me some Steve White brutality any day. And, yep. and when I was a kid, I love that stuff too. You know, the more gore, the better, frankly. But, well, yeah, I'm just sticking to I think taste, I will be it? the one. I will be the one to err on Donna's side in this case. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> also, I purposely bumped up the color palette and jollied up the dinosaurs. By the way, I was working in gouache back then and switched to acrylics shortly after this project. Uh, if you want to see her acrylic work, um, I did some reviews of her work. Uh, I Niels, I did some reviews of her work uh, that she did with uh, Don Lessem. So I'll uh, I'll link that in the show notes as well. Uh, number six, I guess I owe Tenontosaurus an apology, although it does show up on page eleven, safe and sound. Uh, yeah, but tiny. <laughs> <laughs> in my defense, less dinosaur behavior was known back then, and illustrators were thrilled to be able to tell a hopefully verified story. Well, that's fair, I think. It's the same reason why uh, everyone and their mother reconstructs Velociraptor and Protoceratops fighting. Yeah, although that stands to reason. More of a concrete thing, given that they were found interlocked, whereas sort of Tenontosaurus and, and Dinolycus, there's obviously been some controversy over whether they're actually. You know, what the exact situation was there. Although they lived at the same time, so it's not unreasonable to suspect no, that Tonondicus hunted Tonontosaurus. <laughs> I mean, it seems quite likely. Who knows? But yeah, anyway, I digress again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, moving on, seven and finally, page 31. That is the Hall of Feeding with the Corythosaurus. The lady in the blue striped shirt, that's my mom. Well, uh, Shout Yay. out to Donna's mum. Shout out to Donna. Thank you very much for uh, replying. <laughs> love your work. Yeah, great work. Thank you very much. I, I, I love the color palette in that book too. Yeah, yeah go uh, check out the show notes for episode 27 to uh, read that comment again and uh, listen to the episode if you haven't already. Um, speaking of follow-up, I've got two tiny things to say uh, in addition to this. If you cast your mind back all the way to episode two, uh, we had Natalia Jagelska on. Remember that? And uh, we were talking about um, a video game that was then in development uh, that Natalia did the scientific consultancy for. Um, it's called Paleopines, and it is now out. You can get it on Steam. So if you're interested in cute dinosaur video games, go check that out. Um, this podcast is not sponsored. Yes. I haven't Ooh. played it at all. My Have laptop uh, won't play something like that. But yeah, go check it out if you uh, if you fancy uh, also, in episode two, we mentioned the funding for the statue of Mary Anning. That statue is now unveiled. Uh, it has been for a while, actually. Uh, the unveiling was in uh, May of 2022. We never did the follow-up on that. 
but yeah, uh, it's it's finished. So uh, if you ever find yourself in Lyme Regis, you can see the uh, statue of Mary Anning there, walking along the coast, ammonite in hand, followed by a faithful dog. So that's lovely. Good stuff. I like Lyme Regis. Can't walk down the beach without tripping over an ammonite. Do you know, I cannot believe that I still haven't been to Lyme Regis in all these years. And now I have even more of an excuse to go and less of an excuse not to <laughs> make a bit which, whichever, whichever well, way is better. You know what to do. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Niels. Um, Mark, you wanted to tell us about a new short film to grace the periosphere. Yes, well, I've somehow heard about this, even though I'm pretty much a social media hermit at this point. Um, it's The Hatchling. The Hatchling. The Hatchling. Yes, it's on the, on the YouTube channel Digital Duck. And the premise is quite Jurassic World-ish, as in at least the uh, latter two, especially the last Jurassic World film, except the dinosaurs don't look terrible. And essentially it's following... Um, slightly Spielbergian group of kids as they attempt to hide a Dinochirus hatchling from the authorities. Um, the hatchling of the title, of course. So yeah, very much yes. like E.T., for example, kind of has a bit of an 80s um, family movie vibe to it. And they deliver it to the parents in the forest. And there's a nice surprise near the end, which I won't spoil for anybody, but it involves another really nicely rendered uh, theropod dinosaur. <laughs> Gee, I wonder what happens. Yeah, and some a little bit of dark humour, which I really appreciated. Um, somewhat reminiscent of a certain scene in The Lost World, actually, which some people really, really hate. Like um, <laughs> our Lord and Blogmaster, David Orr, famously really hates that particular scene, but I think it's quite funny, really. Yeah, my brother hates uh, it, too. Yeah, it's just you, you, oh, you no. just can't do that to the um, the pets in question. Yeah, I think, but... we, I think we have <laughs> thoroughly spoiled it now. <laughs> okay, I've ruined it now. I haven't said which yeah. dinosaur it is. And the, the <laughs> dinosaur is not T-Rex for a start, and it's it looks really good. I mean, there's a similar dinosaur in the Jurassic World movies, very closely related. Yeah, except this one doesn't at... have a sail. <laughs> what? Well, no, 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 no. no, no, the whole no, thing. No. No. <laughs> no, no. Not, not that one. <laughs> not that one. Not that one, but, but still in not... the same family. That's only in <laughs> Jurassic Park 3 for a start. It's not in any of the Jurassic World films. No. But there is a similar dinosaur in the Jurassic World films, except it looks terrible. Whereas the one in this actually looks pretty nice. It looks, it looks very nice. Um, so yeah, the CGI is decent. I mean, obviously, this was made on a shoestring budget, so it's not going to be super duper millions of dollars Hollywood quality. But it looks pretty good given that. Um, the dinosaur reconstructions are good. Again, much, much better than anything in the Jurassic World movies. I mean, pretty much everything in that was as the Americans might say, S. So it, it looks good. I have a lot to censor in this episode. <laughs> what do you censor that? We, we're aimed at, you know, we're definitely at least a PG-13 podcast. <laughs> I know for a fact that there are children listening to this podcast. Well, they've got to learn sometime. <laughs> so I, I was quite impressed by it. As I said, you can go on to Digital Duck. And uh, I know Peng is quite familiar with some of the people, the creative people behind Well, yes, it. that's right. I mean, I mean, I think we, uh, most of us are well aware that Max Bolomio, uh, whose uh, uh, social media handle is indeed a Digital Duck, um, is at the helm of, of the, uh, the visuals uh, on this film. But um, to my shame, it took me a while to actually put two and two together. Um, uh, and realize uh, Bri Bowman's involvement in this. Bri um, is uh, a great friend, um, one of the uh, admittedly innumerable 
people in the dino uh, in the paleosphere on whom I have uh, uh, an inordinate crush. Um, but where was I? <laughs> um, Bry Bullman, who is also a host of the Neo Jurassic uh, podcast, who gave us a shout uh, back in our very first or in our earlier episodes uh, a year ago, and um, whose favor we have returned, of course. Um, we gave a shout out uh, to his podcast. But anyway, Bry is, uh, is co writer and producer of this series. Um, and he, along with the work of Max, the Wunderkind, and uh, and a whole host of people um, have have made this film. And yeah, I, to my very great shame, it took me a long, a considerable while to actually realize that um, that they were connected. But it all, of course, it it, it made perfect sense. Um, and Dino Chirus, the star of the Hatchling, um, happens to be a great favorite of Bry's. I think it's favorite of everybody. Of oh, I mean, a great many people. Seeing, That's true. Yeah, who doesn't love yeah. seeing CG Dino Chirus? I didn't notice <laughs> that the, the, the Dinochorus is more sparsely feathered than the one in Prehistoric Planet, which I actually prefer because it is, you know, huge. <laughs> I think a kind of woolly mammoth shaggy Dinochorus is living in a warm, swampy environment. It's somewhat unlikely. But nevertheless, this is not to bash Prehistoric Planet, of course, because we Prehistoric Planet we all love unequivocally. However, unequivocally. I do like that about this one. <laughs> unequivocally. <laughs> I do, but I do like that about the Dinochorus in this short and as i said just the fact that this gives you a glimpse of what the jurassic the latter jurassic world films could have been like if only they'd given a single uh fig about the designs of the creatures and not just made them ugly as soon a, si- a single well fig to... well done yes i sent to myself there i think it was a breath of fresh air really yeah. for people passionate people to be able to do this with almost no budget and to make something that looks at least as convincing as Jurassic World, because, you know, even with your Hollywood millions, there is no guarantee that you'll have anything that looks halfway decent. Uh, we all know that the Hollywood yeah. animation system is pretty much broken <laughs> at this point. But also, if your creature designs are so monstrous, then the animals aren't going to look convincing anyway, because they just end up looking like monsters and not like animals. That's another point. Um, I think it was well acted. The dinosaurs look great. If if I have some constructive criticism, I feel that if it it could have it could have been taken to the next level, if maybe the appearance of the big Dinochirus had been given a little bit more sort of Spielbergian build up, because at one point they're in the woods and they look to the left and it's just there. Yeah, there was a little build up. I mean, yeah, but not much. Maybe you could have had it building up. Mind you, I mean, you say that, but then of course. There is a little bit of build-up, and it's true that there's no the Spielbergian build-up that you would get in, say, the original Jurassic Park. Then again, of course, the Jurassic World films haven't had that either, as I believe you also No, very believe. true. <laughs> yeah. So, well done. Yes, congratulations. Yeah, well done to all involved. I haven't watched yet um, Morgan Freeman's Walking with Prehistoric Animals, but I believe, <laughs> Nati, you have seen some of it. I have indeed, yes. Well, at least two episodes so far. Um, Life on Our Planet, uh, which aired yesterday um, uh, on Netflix. And um, I have to say that it it is hard for me to disagree with Jack Seal's review in The Guardian, in that um, it has a laudable scope um, because it wants to cover uh, so much ground. Um, It is, as the title says, Life on Our Planet. It goes so far back, way before the dinosaurs, and it comes right up to the present day. Um, The scope is extremely admirable, but 
I think it's marred by its script, unfortunately, with um, the, in particular, the constant framing of groups of organisms as though they were warring clans vying for supremacy. It's, um, it's a very jarring... Working with monsters did that all the time. Well, there is here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there you go. Um, the arthropods are back, baby. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, this is is pretty much a constant, at least in the first episode, which, uh, uh, admittedly, it, it the first one acting as a kind of prologue um, has to do a lot of well, a, a lot of work trying to you know trying to to build the premise of the series. So it and it does that a lot with the whole dynasty the language of dynasties um, taking over from, from the previous one. I mean, I, I made a joke, um, you, you know, have a drinking game, take a swig at every occurrence of the word dynasty or dynasties, and you'd be dangerously drunk in a very short time. Um, oh, dear. Sounds like fun. Great. <laughs> yes, no doubt. <laughs> uh, disclaimer again uh, for this apparently PG-13 podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we do not encourage excessive drinking. No, we Drink don't. Responsibly. But um, I mean, I hope that we'll, we'll save much of the discussion of the series um, for, for its own episode. Um, but um, I do have this to say that the, the second episode that I've seen is much better than the first. And perhaps because uh, its focus is on marine life, uh, ancient and modern. And there are, in, in this episode at least, fewer charismatic megafauna with which to endow, you know, um, battleground prowess as it were because you had lots of lots of plankton life and nudibranchs and and trilobites and and although the 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 whole dynastic language and theme uh, still recurs throughout it's much less underplayed and on the whole it is a much more enjoyable episode than the first um so we'll i suppose have to see what the rest of the series looks like but so far many people actually um not just uh Jack Seal in The Guardian um, has been of the opinion that this whole framing of it like a kind of war game is just exhausting. And and for me, at least, it's very hard uh, to stay with. It's a bit hackneyed, isn't it? The whole thing of, you know, it's Somewhat. a classic sort of misinterpretation of survival of the fittest. And just right. so it's a constant battle between all these different clays, just right. you know, constant warfare, not really understanding what ecosystems are. And this <laughs> I mean, is the problem. Because because in its uh, attempt to be much more educational, it's actually not answering evolutionary questions by by framing the whole premise in in this way, in the way that we've just been been, been talking about. Um, it's not actually explaining how evolution works. It's not yeah, and that's it's doing itself a disservice in spite of the very promising scope that it has. But as I say, we'll hopefully we'll keep. Uh, we'll have much more to say, and we'll, we'll, we'll make a, mo- a more thorough discussion of it when uh, when the time comes. But but yeah, but these these are my impressions so far. Will we? Because I was sort of planning on on asking this to our listeners again. Uh, is there any appetite for a special episode on life on our planet the way we did with prehistoric planet? Actually, that is a good question to pose. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So I I believe that there is interest in the series and in a much more thorough discussion of it. But but all the same, yes, we'd love to hear from you. Please tell us whether you would like us to talk about it in short. Yeah, weigh in. Please, thank you. So, let us on to our vintage dinosaur art. Vintage dinosaur art. 
Prehistoric Animals, The Extraordinary Story of Life Before Man, written by Ellis Owen and published by Octopus in 1975. Now, I haven't mentioned the illustrators for this because there are quite a number of them. Is that not so? Yes, not everyone's credited. Also, it's mainly all about model photography and dioramas rather than illustrations as such. Yes, so right. There is a lot in here and... Yeah, we're covering some familiar ground here because, of course, we talked about the Invicta dinosaurs in the previous episode, Invicta Plastics um, models. And a lot of the models in here are sculpted by Arthur Hayward, who also sculpted a lot of the early Invicta models in particular. Hooray! And indeed, a lot of the models in here have a very familiar appearance. Um, At least one of them looks pretty much like it is a really nicely painted Invicta model, which isn't that surprising, given it was sculpted by the same guy. But yeah, okay, it's not just him, but it is a lot of model photography really evocative very atmospheric in addition to sculpting for Invicta of course Hayward sculpted for Ray Harryhausen he was never credited but he was behind creations for you know One Million Years BC and Valley of Guanji and you can see a lot of that in here as well Uh, there's a T-Rex on page 65 and that looks extremely Guanji-like that is is absolutely Guanji yeah but it's Guanji all painted up yeah, it's, it's in funky colours, so it's red and green now, um, rather than just sort of brown. But It almost has this sort of Scottish uh, Scottish tartan thing going on in its back. <laughs> I suppose it does, yeah. It looks like someone's tartan blanket. But put it, put it over your knees and eat, uh, eat a Mr. Whippy on the coast in the rain. That's what you would do <laughs> in, in, your, in your car. Um, yes, <laughs> it looks very Guanji. Apart from only having two fingers, I think Guanji had three fingers because it was... Uh, a kind of Allosaurus T-Rex mashup, because it definitely only has two. Uh, not terribly accurate, of course. No, uh, it's even it's the head, very it has, nighty in T-Rex, isn't it? Exactly. It has very uniform teeth, and the teeth go below the orbit, and it just looks, yeah, it, it's not up to Hayward's best, but it's a little bit sort of monsterized, but it's still a nice sculpt, and it's always good to see this kind of uh, miniature photography with diorama. It's got lots of character, though. Lots of character. I mean... Oh, yes, very much, yeah. Hayward often, and obviously it's seen in the Harryhausen films as well, Hayward often imbues these models with a lot of character. Um, Another one with a lot of character is the Triceratops that has a whole spread to itself. Um, So a whole double page is just the Triceratops model with some dirt, you know, a minimal background. And it looks really good. It's, it's, again, very characterful, really well made. And it, it, yeah, it looks threatening i mean that yellow beady eye which obviously grabs your attention because it's mostly just blue and then obviously the contrasting yellow eye staring out at you from underneath that glowering <laughs> brow it looks quite it looks slightly <laughs> sinister it, it looks very th- well, i suppose and triceratops should really look threatening i mean it would have been a very threatening animal yeah um, to encounter it's sure. sarah's dad it's always good to see it Sorry, yes. I, <laughs> I went there again. <laughs> no, not a Land Before Time reference. Get out. Daddy tops. <laughs> Daddy oh, yes. Tops. I guess he does. Also, the horns are good. If you look at the horns, I need to mention the horns because Agatha wouldn't forgive me otherwise. The horns are really nicely done on this. Uh, so if you look at the, the painting, the sort of gradation on the keratin. Yes, the absolutely. The subtle striping. Yep. The sort of uh, pop marks at the end of one of them. That's really, that shows a real... Really great attention to these. Yeah, that's beautiful. Really well Uh, done. I I do think what's slightly letting this one down, as opposed to the T-Rex, is the scalation, because it's standing in in sand, and because you can kind of scale it to the grains of sand that you see, it does look smaller Uh, than you probably meant to imagine it. 
And in the case of T-Rex, yeah. there's some scaled trees next to it. So you can kind of imagine it as big. Somehow that, that wasn't a problem for me. The, the grains of sand almost didn't register to me because I was just too focused on the model itself. Um, and it's only when you pointed it out that, yes, you're right, if you did look closely, um, you are thrown out a little bit by that believability. But for me, at least, to begin with, um, it wasn't an issue. It just, I was just too too drawn to the, the model itself. It also contrasts very favorably with the Styracosaurus from a couple of pages prior, which does look like another Hayward to me, but isn't credited as such. I'm not sure if it's just an oversight or whom exactly it's by, but it doesn't really have a frill to speak of. Some of those really quirky... Burian influenced Storacosaurus, where it doesn't have really a frill. It's just got the spikes that you would expect on the frill yeah. coming directly out of its forehead and kind of behind its eye. So there's just no frill there at all. It's just got the spikes coming out of its face, um, which looks a bit wrong and off. But I mean, it's a nice model for sure. And uh, you've got the uh, pretty flowers in the background. I do appreciate the, the flowers. That's nice. Yes. It looks yeah. it looks more dragon like, I suppose. It does. One. It does look very dragon like, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> its paint job also makes it look like a statue a bit. That is yeah, true. Yes. Has, it looks like a bronze statue, doesn't it? Just yeah, all just a little bit of verdigris. Um, I am trying to find the Apatosaurus. I think it's an Apatosaurus in this book. The Apatosaurus looks like an Invicta model. I was about to say, yeah, exactly. It really does. That's another Arthur Hayward. And so, again, it's understandable it would look like an Invicta model because the same guy sculpted it, as presumably sculpted the Diplodocus, and probably a Patasaurus too for Invicta. I'd say it's, it looks a bit more like the Diplodocus from Invicta than the Apatosaurus. It's not quite mm-hmm. as rotund as the Invicta Apatosaurus or Brontosaurus. Um, yes. But, yeah, the wrinkles, the sort of the very specific wrinkles at the base of the neck, the sort of the folds there are virtually identical to the Invicta sauropods. Again, there's not a lot of scale going on here. I think that is one advantage of the, the T Rex scene and a few others in particular, where they have the miniature trees yes. to provide a little scale, an extra sense of, um, of size and flesh out the world a bit. This one is just sort of standing in a sand pit. <laughs> yeah, in front of a, a, With a paint, what looks like a painted, painted background. background. Yeah. 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 I suppose maybe it's meant to just highlight the dinosaur to you, but it's not as effective, I think, as some of the others where you've got a, a fuller scene, a fuller picture. As with the Invictors, there's a great deal of attention to detail in the anatomy. You've got the the shoulder blade, the musculature sticking up there, really nice thigh musculature. That's yeah. all well done, even though it's obviously very retro. <laughs> the dragging tail and everything. Not necessarily, it's from the 70s. Yeah, right. I mean, even for that time, it's it's not dinosaur renaissance sort of stuff. It's uh, it's fairly retro. Although at least mm. it's not in the water. Um, as I remember, the author of this book is really fond of sauropods being in the water. Whereas that, it, it um, it does look as though it had just come out of the water, though. <laughs> really? Mm. Well, <laughs> shiny. Well, no, I meant because the background is suggestive of a kind of shoreline. Don't you think? Oh yeah, it is. I yeah. do think that that's the the suggestion is deliberate, but still, uh, still at least it's, it's not actually in water, so that's something. More Hayward on the previous page. There's a I particularly want to mention this one. There's a Ceratosaurus devouring a carcass. Ah yes, which appeared in a stop motion little a stop stop motion film from the sixties. I remember seeing. Um, like, I think you can find it on YouTube. There's a video about. Um, basically recreating prehistoric animals and then you see him and he's manipulating the model and then you see a bit of short footage of it you know eating the carcass and that's from that and you can you can see it's got joints in it particularly the tail you can see is bent at a few places where the joints are yeah 
Um, but yeah, wonderfully gory scene. We were talking earlier on about how much we like gore. And oh yes, yeah. how much do you like gore? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely gory scene. It is beautiful, though. It is a beautiful, um, a, a more complete scene, a more yeah. complete diorama with the drinks. Yeah. Yes, and you can movie. imagine it moving in that stop motion yes, way. Yes, exactly, very much so. In terms of other models in here, there are some dioramas. I mean, there are a lot of fish, which I know lots of fish. Which I know Darren Nature would be really happy about. He loves his fish. Fish, uh, fish, fish, fish. You've got, and you got uh, yeah, some really nice fish dioramas, which look like they might have been in the NHL at one point. I'm not sure, but uh, not anymore. The Allosaur diorama on the cover, which again is really, really nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's got a full spread uh, in the book itself on page sixty-two and sixty-three. Yes, and you can see a little armored dinosaur of some kind wandering along in the background. Looks yeah, I like think that's a, painted. Yeah, yeah, it, it looks like a Skullidosaurus or something, which shouldn't be there, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's fine. Um, I don't know if this was originally meant to be Allosaurus or something else. Um, and well, the skull looks more T-Rex to me. The skull is very generic, big therapy. It does look, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But regardless, it's a nice diorama. Um, I really like the background with all the trees and it's um, Peter put a lot of thought into it. And yeah, it's credited to the Horniman Museum. If it was ever on display in the Horniman Museum, it's not there anymore. So I'd love to know what happened to that. Whether it's just disassembled, if any of these are in their collections, it'd be good to know. I'm sure a lot of the models in here are in the NHM's collections. Um, and as I said before, or I'd love if they dug some of this stuff out and put it on display again, you know, obsolete dinosaurs. Although some of it is still on display. Uh, actually, or is it? There's a Smilodon, which for a long time was on display next to the Smilodon skeleton in the Natural History Museum in London. Oh, is this the one? Yeah, it's page 86, 87. It's, it's got, again, got a spread to itself. Um, it's a really nice model, and for a long time it was on display next to the skeleton. I'm not sure that it is anymore, and I haven't been there for a while. With the uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise it was this very one, but um, but yes, that that makes sense. It's credited to G. Kins, who gets a lot of credits in this book, especially for the mammals. I still don't know who they are. <laughs> no, I don't either. But, uh... Yeah, it's got that snarling cat face going on. I mean, there's, there's very little you can fault this one for. You know, felids and um, related creatures aren't too difficult to 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 go wrong with. Sure, <laughs> I'm sure there are some Smilodon experts out there who would uh, take umbrage at that. They'd say, "No, you got this, this, and that little tiny detail wrong." And that's that's people. very true. Whereas, of course, we, we look at it, we think, "Well, it's a cat." Yeah, <laughs> and it's the same with the Dinotherium, which uh, which is at the very end of the book. That looks perfectly convincing to me, but you know. You just mm, mm. take an elephant, put it in the shape of that, and there's your Dinotherium. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine, though. Like, it's like how I would look at a T-Rex reconstruction, like the one in um, no, you're Life on right. Prehistoric Dinosaur Planet on Netflix, and say, well, that looks off because the teeth are wrong and the shape of the skull is off, and that old cranial ornamentation is weird, and that and that and that. I, I do wonder sometimes if you know, experts in prehistoric mammals are looking at these and going, well, that's wrong and that's off. And that little detail there. No, I, we're, we're I, just going, very that sure. looks like an elephant with weird tusks. Yes. So that's why it's <laughs> no. I'm sure that is exactly the case. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I'm but sure. It's, it's a good model. And again, it's, I'm sure a lot of these beautiful model. Yeah. were on display in the NHM for a long time. But yeah, with, uh, with everything that isn't a dinosaur, all I have to go on is 
does this convince me? Can I believe that this is a real animal? And in this case, I can. So mm. it passes the test, but I'm not an expert. Yeah. It hangs yeah. together as a good model of a creature, and you believe it. I have to mention, again, the um, Megaloceros on page 9293, which are Arthur Hayward creations. That's beautiful. That's gorgeous. They are nicely done. Um, I'm not sure. There are some elements of this reconstruction, I believe, that wouldn't pass muster now because thoughts on its um, relationships within deer have changed. And ah, uh, uh, yes, of... yes, it's less red deer and and more um, more fallow. Yeah, uh, but it's so a beautiful speak. model anyway, or two beautiful yes. models because there's a male and a female, of course. Yes, uh, and a nice background. I think it's a photo they've stuck on there. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. where. But, uh, Very heroic, posing it on a cliff like that. Yeah. Classic. Of course, that, that is the only Megaloceros male pose that you're allowed. Um, <laughs> yes. And obviously, you know, comparisons with Edward Lancier's Monarch of the Glen is just inevitable. But um, Yes. Yeah. Need we even mention that? <laughs> Everyone was thinking that, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Everyone. Jenkins also, whoever they were, uh, apologies, a contemporary of Arthur Hayward, uh, also responsible for the Stegosaurus, which is one of the most retro dinosaurs in here. Yeah, that is very crawling, very shapeless, very retro, even for the time. It's what I call the pasty Stegosaur. Yes, um, I was about to say yeah. that, the classic pasty Stegosaurus, yeah. where the, um, the plates are like the crust and the pasty. Yeah. Exactly so, and and the whole body silhouette is pretty much a semicircular, short neck, short tail. Both of which were wrong, <laughs> but you know it was it was like the, probably the sixties when they made but, this. Um, but yeah. but beautiful models all the same. Yes, in yes, their own right. Yeah. It is similar again to the Invictus Stegosaurus, although that, if anything, is a bit more refined than this. I suppose it's probably about ten years newer. Yeah, because it's 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 very much based on the general shape that Knight would give a Stegosaurus, but I don't, it feels even more retro than that. Somehow. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> But full of charm, nevertheless. Yes. Everything is full of charm, and everything's so everything atmospheric. I mean, yeah, I, I can imagine people picking this book up in the you know seventies, eighties, and just being absolutely entranced by it. If you're into prehistoric animals, especially kids, all these life reconstructions, none of them are models, just entrance you, and, and so so evocative. Uh, there's an Arthur Hayward Archaeopteryx, by the way, on page Archaeopteryx. I so hoped we would yeah. bring that up soon. Yeah, it is gorgeous, isn't it? Oh, come on. Yeah, that's a pretty decent Archaeopteryx, isn't it? It's not bad. The hands are a bit weird. Well, <laughs> I mean, I think I think we 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 had we had to expect the hands to be that way. And it has that very yeah. typical pose with the outspread wings. Exactly. So, yep. Well, you the have to do that. Pose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to. Yeah, the only pre-dinosaur Renaissance uh, Archaeopteryx pose you are legitimately allowed to use. You can't just have um, it sitting there with its wings folded. Otherwise, you know how we know it has full wings of feathers if we don't have them extended <laughs> like that. I oh, know. Are, are there any others you, any of you, particularly want to mention? Well, the the Protoceratops babies. That's one of my favourites. Um, yeah. Although the limbs are strangely almost. Um, mummified looking <laughs> yes actually the whole thing's a bit mummified looking they mentioned well, well yes but in spite of it i think that the whole thing just feels um we were saying earlier about uh, if the thing looks convincing and i believe that this this pair of protoceratops really do look like convincing little animals whatever yeah. else their anatomical flaws may be um, it's almost as if you can yeah. see some of that amniotic fluid flowing right this yeah. model has appeared in a few places. I think it might have appeared in Dinosaurs! Exclamation mark as well in a really early issue. 
Um, it does look familiar, yeah. I think it's an NHM model that's, again, probably in their collection somewhere <laughs> in the deep, deep vault. <laughs> More model photography and books, please. I know we're all about CGI these days, but you just can't beat a really nice little diorama. No, I have and to agree. Something that's physically there. Yes, I very much agree with that one. We said, to, I'm pretty sure we said this when we looked at the Ultimate Dinosaur book as well, that we missed all the model photography. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah, where'd it go? Yeah. Well, CGI came along. I mean, there's still people out there making models. There are, but CGI came along and everyone's like, well, we've got to have CGI now. I mean, thankfully, publishers are starting to row back on that a bit, but yeah, for a long time, yeah. just CGI everything. Because CGI isn't unionized. <laughs> but it, and it's a good point to make again, though. Um, and especially now that we have so many independent model makers, um, really, really good uh, artists who know their stuff, know their anatomy, who are making their own 3D prints of figures, making the pockets of collectors um, worryingly thin. But anyway, if we could have more of this stuff, see, see, uh, put, put the, um, the model photography and the creation of diorama into books as illustrations uh, again, rather than, than CG dinosaurs. I think this would be a wonderful route to take. We could have a mix. We could have some CG, we could have some 2D illustration, exactly. Exactly some so. model photography. That would be amazing. And just, I know this sort of thing has been done in sort of very, you know, we've got to face it, quite niche publications like Dinosaur Art. You've got a mixture of things in there. Um, at least one of the dinosaurs. I think Dinosaur Art 2 had some model photography in it. But, but just put this stuff into mainstream dinosaur books, even ones aimed at kids. I agree. You know, like the big no. old encyclopedia of dinosaurs. Start doing. Yes. Stop paying the artists, damn it. Pay the artists. Give no, them absolutely. Let's have some yep. more of this stuff. Dorling Kindersley were great for this for a period, um, for using uh, models as illustrations in their natural history books, or in the, in the dinosaur ones in particular. It'd be great to see a return to this. Um, we're not lacking in, in resources. You just need to find the right artists and pay them properly, obviously, um, yep. and, and do that. That's where it all falls down, of course. <laughs> That's where it all falls down. <laughs> but in this um, very pertinent moment to mention, uh, in, in the, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it a fight against uh, generative AI, because it is. Um, yes. In, in this uh, moment now that, that artists are, are reckoning with, and, and a lot of, to our dismay, a lot of people who should know better have been using generative AI uh, as illustrations for the various, whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. In this moment where uh, some of us are putting greater emphasis on handmade things, this is an opportune moment to put models, dinosaur models, prehistoric animal models, back into books as illustrations, I think. Like I said, have a mix. Real handmade have, models, yeah, photography, exactly. no. CGI, yeah. and traditional two-dimensional art as well. No AI, though, obviously. Screw AI. Everything no it does AI. in terms of paleo, paleo art is absolutely terrible, and it seems to really have trouble with perspective. Um, also, they call it AI, and it's just machine learning software, but yeah. that's a whole other concept. Oh, yeah. Nothing intelligent Plagiarism about it. <laughs> no. Plagiarism software. Yeah, it does feel yep. a bit like we're at, at a crossroads at this moment in time, where we as a society collectively could either go the way of the the generative machine learning thing where we just phase out artists altogether with their demands and their unions or embrace the diversity of the moment, embrace all this talent that we have lying around. There is so much talent. There yeah, is exactly. so much talent and it is so diverse too. 
because we have people working in Completely. CG who make beautiful things. We have people working in digital art, in traditional art, in model making like this uh, from all corners of the world. Totally. And there is... it is time that not just the niche books like the Steve White uh, omnibuses, but also the mainstream dinosaur books like this one uh, fully embraced the diversity of the moment. Yep, I would drink to that. I would drink to that one empty. Again, love in the time of Chasmosaurus does not endorse heavy drinking. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not drinking heavily. Excuse me. <laughs> Mate, <laughs> I know you. <laughs> no comment. No comment. <laughs> Our guest today is an old familiar face. Asher Elbein has been known to uh, contribute to uh, the blog Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus in the olden days, but he uh, graduated to grown-up journalism. Good for him. Asher, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Great. Uh, also joining us is the OG of Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus, Mr. David Orr himself. It's me. I'm here. The OG. Mm. Lord and Blogmaster, as Pank called me. Okay, that's right. Asher, first of all, thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. First of all, we like to set the mood. We always start with the same question. What got you into dinosaurs, into natural history back in the day? Well, I had a pretty typical uh, dinosaur fan upbringing in that, uh, you know, I was a kid and there were dinosaur books in the library and I, I loved weird critters with big teeth. Um, I very much enjoyed going to museums, but my, my interest in dinosaurs really actually uh, sort of sprouted outward from a, just a basic interest in, you know, things with polysyllabic names and, and sort of strange appearances <laughs> to a much more uh, kind of all-encompassing love of, of natural history that, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't catch dinosaurs, but I could catch reptiles. So, you know, I, I got very interested in reptiles and then I got very interested in birds um, and and sort of processes of ecology and zoology and and then the ways that humans interact with those those sort of natural processes via culture um, and I really enjoyed writing about all of that so I, I was given the opportunity to uh, at a pretty young age write for Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus and uh, then sort of proceeded on to a science journalism career and I've been freelancing at that for gosh, about nine years now and haven't had to get a real job yet. So, you know, it's and hopefully I'll just I'll be able to keep doing it for quite some time to come. Yeah, good for you. It's it's so amazing that somebody just started from our blog and used that as a stepping stone for a career. It's it's great. Yeah. I And the other thing I think that was great about Love in the Time of Casual Stories is some of my favorite pieces of writing I've ever done. Um, are still, you know, stuff that I that I wrote for the blog, just because it was a space where I could just be kind of like, uh, really kind of loose and and weird. And, and you know, I, I, I think that some of that stuff, actually, I, I've gone back and looked at it, looked at it occasionally. And uh, I think, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put on airs, but I think it holds up pretty well for stuff that I was writing I in college. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty incredible. Because <laughs> I always feel like uh, I'm on a rotating three to five year cycle mm -hmm. of that everything at that point was garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are definitely, I mean, I think for me, it was, it was lucky that it wasn't my responsibility to maintain a steady posting output, which meant that I could just sort of come mm -hmm. in and, 
and and write something when I just had a wild hair to write about like devil dinosaur or something. It, really, inspiration is great. And like stuff produced through inspiration can be really great. But it's one of the things that I found in my day job is that at some point you just have to sit down and grind the stuff out. And the stuff that you have to sit down and grind out, um, when you get to a point where that's like basically competent and you don't hate it, that's really when you're like a craftsman. And if you have to just sit yeah. and grind it out, a lot of the stuff you're going to grind out, you're going to be like, mm. I prefer to never look at this again, but you know, it pays the bills. Well, yeah, it, it is a craft, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if you're comfortable with it, I'm just going to uh, link a couple of your old articles in the show notes and uh, our listeners who are maybe not that familiar with your old work can, uh, can go back and read it. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I have not written for the blog in quite some time. So, I mean, it's quite possible that people have not encountered my work at all. Of course, you're uh, welcome to come back and uh, do a guest article anytime. You <laughs> might take you guys up on that. We'll see. Yeah, go for it. Oh, well, we'll see. Now, Asher, of course, the reason we have you on the show is earlier this year, you had a book out written together with uh, Cindy Surwa Collins. It's called Dinosaurs and other ancient animals of Big Bend. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it'd, it'd be great to hear about like how, how the project came about and um, working with your collaborators Certainly. on it. So um, about two years ago, I got an email kind of out of the blue from uh, UT Press, which is the uh, sort of publication arm of the University of Texas, uh, which is here in Austin, where, where I live. Um, and they were asking if I would be interested in taking on uh, an illustration job for this sort of perspective book that Cindy Sirwa Collins, who is a retired science teacher here in Texas, was pitching them about the kind of ancient wildlife of the Big Bend, which, as you know, your listeners may or may not know, is one of the largest uh, national parks in the country, certainly Texas's most spectacular park. And Cindy had basically pitched a field guide to uh, the various creatures from from this sort of sector of Texas, which include animals like, of course, the very famous Quetzalcoatlus, the uh, somewhat less famous but still very cool Alamosaurus, um, some kind of Tyrannosaur uh, identity TBD, and all sorts of other things. Right. And I was pretty interested in this because I do I do paleo art very much on the side. Um, but I sort of had to think about it and I thought, you know, I'm not, I think, a good enough paleo artist to do good enough work at the rate that they'll probably be paying. You know, someone like Julius can can just churn stuff out really fast and at a really high level of quality. And I have to sort of labor over it. Um, but I just on a whim, I was like, well, it seems like this is maybe a project that could stand potentially to have a, a co-writer. And so we talked about that and I talked to Cindy and then I ended up coming on board the book that way. So Cindy had produced a lot of material, um, but Cindy's not really a professional writer, which is a, for my sins, something that I've, I've gotten to be pretty professionally accomplished at. And so I was working uh, in large part from a lot of her notes. We sort of talked through what um, some like sort of alternate structures for the book could be. And then I took her material, went off and wrote my own draft. She looked at my draft and, and made some edits and some notes. I looked at her edits and made some edits on top of those. And pretty soon we, we put together a, a sort of a book that not just talks about uh, the sort of specific interesting species that are to be found in the fossil record of the Big Bend, but also uh, 
you know, a little bit of sort of basic education about how, uh, how paleontology works and how fossils are formed. Um, because Cindy is, again, a retired teacher and really wanted to emphasize some of that sort of basic science education. And then also uh, a sort of longer pieces about how the geology and like sort of geography of the Big Ben changed over millions of years. You know, this sort of like rising mountains and retreating seas and the sort of bubbling and buckling of super volcanoes. And then also talked a little bit about the fossil history of the region, which is also, you know, in its own way, very interesting. And something that I brought to the project that I'm, I'm quite proud of was uh, these little these little sections that are essentially descriptive fiction of, you know, these sort of little snapshots of time of what is it like during yes. the Havelina form, you know, on like a sunny day in the Havelina formation. What is it like on, you know, uh, sort of like a, a winter evening in the in the sort of Pleistocene when the Big Bend is really taking its modern shape? But obviously, a lot of the animal life to be found there is is no longer there. And really, the hope was to try and like make some of these landscapes not just come alive in the sort of geological sense of like landscapes that if you if you run the clock fast enough are, are sort of moving and dancing, but also really diving in and saying a specific day at a specific time, what might you see in these landscapes that are you know now dead and gone, but at that time were like alive and uh, very very much the world. I, th I thought those sections were really, really beautiful. And uh, yes, absolutely. I can imagine being a, a visitor, you know, to the park, coming across this book in their gift shop, and it adding so much to my experience of, you know, exploring the park. Uh, those sections seem to serve the role that maybe a large paleo art mural might, whereas you've got Julius's beautiful renderings of the individual animals. And then you've got these scenes that you set that you could see it being this grand widescreen yeah. image, like it's really very evocative. Yeah. And it, it would have been, so there's some sort of realities of publishing that kind of got in the way there, right? Like if it had been up to me um, and, you know, there had been the, the book project that had a much larger budget than it had, I would have loved to have had, you know, paleo art that not, wasn't just like these, these sort of small um, kind of occasional species, uh, portraits that Julius did that he knocked out of the park as he always does. Um, but, you know, full, beautiful, uh, full color murals for each section. And, of course. But uh, I, I, I sort of floated that idea and was politely told that there was no chance in hell of it happening because UT Trust does not have that kind of money. <laughs> yes. Oh, well. And, and, and just to be clear to our, to our uh, listeners, we're talking about uh, Julius Chitney, the legendary modern paleo artist who I'm sure most of you know, but that's the Julius. There's not another Julius mm -hmm. out there running around drawing things. Except no substitutes. Well, yeah. <laughs> the real deal. It was really great too. Like I'd, I'd been wanting to work with him for a while. And, and the, the last couple of times we'd run into each other at, uh, at SVP, uh, we'd sort of batted around the idea of working together on something. And so when this particular project came across my desk, I was like, oh, well, I know exactly who, who we should reach out to. And luckily, uh, it's sort of the, the timing and the, and the budgeting worked out that he was able to um, sort of whip some stuff up for us. And some of those some of those pieces, too, like I, I adore his black and white pencil work. It's mm -hmm. not stuff I feel like you see very often from him in public just because museums tend to like uh, some of his other stylistic offerings more. But 
his the field sketches that he did for us, there's one of a sort of like Campanian era Tyrannosaur that is as yet unnamed, but might be Teratophonius or something like it. Right. But he depicts it just sort of eyeballing you, like like direct like sort of the, that kind of like semi-binocular yeah. vision. That piece reminded me a lot of a Wayne Barlow piece. Yeah, it's very similar now that you mention it. It's a little bit like that Wayne Barlow, Nano Tyrannus, uh, pit, pit, salt over our shoulder. Uh, but like, um, <laughs> you know, it's very similar to that uh, Nano Tyrannus, uh, Wayne Barlow painting, just because it's like, it's eerie and unsettling in the way that like coming around to bend in the trail and like seeing a large predator that's not aggressive, but is like eyeballing you is, it's it's yeah. really good. It's really tremendous stuff. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it. I had that experience with... Uh bears in uh sequoia about 10 years ago and it it really nails that it's too bad that tyrannosaur isn't uh eating berries off of an overloaded bush (laughs) that would be something someone should paint that someone should paint that (laughs) so you mentioned the uh the the narrative the storytelling aspect of the book and uh, i agree with david i think that is the most uh the most striking part of the book and most of the reason to to get a hold of it did you always have this interest in in storytelling in in uh, in myth and how do you blend that together with your interest in natural history yeah i know you've written fiction as well yeah well thank you for asking so one of the things i've always been really interested in storytelling just because um i was a rather you know in, in addition to be a sort of like running around creeks and turning over logs kind of a kid i was also a very like bookish kid you know i really enjoyed um reading fantasy and 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 sort of science fiction and mysteries and i always had that kind of like really deep love for narrative in itself like like how stories are told and uh, you know sort of like a parallel interest in you know, starting, of course, in like Greek mythology as so, and Norse mythology as so many of us do, and then, and then expanding out into other world mythologies and then into the, I think, even more interesting realm of not just mythology, but folklore. Right. And the thing that's really interesting to me about folklore is that it often represents sort of alternate ways of organizing information or alternate ways of sort of engaging with the world where... You know, when people tell stories about Hercules fighting the Hydra, they don't tend to really believe that there might be Hydras that they could run into, you know, like (laughs) that's a thing that happened, you know, a long time ago in the days when, you know, demigods walked the earth and we will not see those days again. Whereas folklore is, well, there's some weird stuff going on and here are my explanations for it or you know, here are the plants that we use that have medicinal properties, you know, here's, you know, there's a building that gives you a weird vibe, like, here's what you do in order to get rid of the weird vibe, because there might be ghosts or imps or or spirits or djinn in it. Mythology doesn't really touch the material world as much as folklore does, even if you don't believe in sort of ghosts or, or spirits, and I don't particularly. There's still the fact that people are thinking about them as inhabitants of the real world in a way that is not strictly speaking religious. And so yeah. that that makes for a really interesting uh, interface where the, some of the fiction that I write, which is very much and very heavily based on on sort of Appalachian folklore, is based around the idea that like, OK, you can have a setting that is very much 
focused on the sort of material realities of Appalachia in the early 20th century, the logging, the mining, the poverty, um, the sort of industrial capitalism and the, the extraction and, and what that did to people. And also those people were telling stories about ghosts and hags and witches and spirits. And to them, there was not a meaningful distinction between the sort of the world of the spirit and the world of the mining company, you know, like there, there are ghosts in the mines as well as, you know, the sort of the mining overseer that you have to deal with. And that to me was really interesting. And pulling to those sort of like narrative tradition of, you know, what do you have to do if you're doing short fiction is you have to make things feel immediate. You have to make things feel alive. You pick the right detail, you pick yeah. the, the sort of the sensory detail. And so bringing that back around to science writing where possible, you know, in, in a lot of the science writing that I do, there's not a lot of room to really just run wild with that. You know, there isn't the, there isn't the real estate to say, okay, you know, what would it be like to walk around a Campanian forest on the on the sort of seaward edge of the interior sea in the Aguja formation of the Big Bend? And we're not going to we're not going to stage a big, you know, dinosaur fight. We're not going to stage a, uh, you know, a sort of a blockbuster moment. It's going to be this very quiet, very sensory sort of experience drawing from my own experiences walking around in places like the Big Thicket in Texas, which is a very similar ecosystem in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that is going to be, you know, I'm not going to subject people to like 50,000 words of that, but like a thousand words of that is more real estate than you ever get, even in like a pretty long science feature. And this book is the place where I could I, I could sort of do that and really just like flex those muscles. Well, uh, sort of to, to unwind from all that, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Asher, if you'll bear with me. Earlier this year in the summer, you've uh, published an article for Vulture, I believe, that really caught my eye and uh, really rang very true to me about Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, We have to mention Jurassic Park. It's in the contract. Sure, of course. And how Jurassic Park sort of fixed dinosaurs again after all the work that had been done during the dinosaur renaissance, thanks to this big blockbuster movie, the public perception of dinosaurs became fixed in one place again and that almost ended the dinosaur renaissance and we were sort of wondering how you see how you would imagine what would a post-jurassic park dinosaur pop culture landscape look like if it were up to you yeah let's imagine that extinction event happening and in you know millennia from now pop that's culture, what it's going to take yeah, yeah tell me about it <laughs> Uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think the thing that I would like to see is I, I certainly am not averse to a like running and chasing monster movie with dinosaurs in it. Um, yeah. And yeah. I also would like to see, you know, if, if we're doing the sort of the wish casting version of this, not the thing that's perhaps likely to happen. <laughs> um, I mean, I would really like to see a, a sort of a, a somewhat more diversity of, the types of stories that dinosaurs are used to tell. Yeah. On some level, that's a little tricky because it's very easy to put dinosaurs in a place of being monsters. And that suggests a certain kind of storytelling, right? Like, you know, for example, Tremors is a great movie. The, the follow-ups to Tremors are not because you really, sometimes you only <laughs> really get like one whack at the idea um, before you, you start running into diminishing returns, but I've been playing a lot of uh, I've been playing a lot of Prehistoric Kingdom, and like I think that it would be, which is a for those who don't know, a, a sort of a zoo 
simulator uh, game in early access with very fine, very finely rendered uh, yes. dinosaurs. Um, but I've seen some let's plays of it. Looks great. Oh, it's it's a it's a it's a ton of fun, and and it gets better with every update. But um, I mean, I think like it would be really fun to have a movie that's like uh, some sort of drama set at a set at a dinosaur zoo where the dinosaurs don't get out and eat everybody. Like, um, <laughs> I think you know, I would love to see somebody take a swing at adapting uh, Bones of Earth, Michael Swanwick's novel. Um, about sort of like time travel and dinosaurs that I think is really crying out for like an HBO miniseries production. Um, you could probably make a movie of it too, but that would be probably trickier. I think, but but even if all that we were going to get was just like run and chase dinosaur movies, I don't know, man, like embrace how weird dinosaurs are. Like, I, I don't exactly. know. Like, it's not even my feeling that like, oh, every dinosaur on film should be, you know, super accurate to what we know. That would be nice and be a nice change. But like, if you're going to do weird dinosaurs, make them like really weird dinosaurs. You know, we mentioned like Brian Eng, like the, the sort of the build a better fake theropod thing from years ago, mm-hmm. where it was like a whole bunch of people coming up with some like really nifty creature designs that were, that are building off of modern paleontology, but taking it in, in sort of different directions, I thought was so much more interesting and so much more sort of engaging than just the umpteenth rendition of like Crash McCreary's, very good. I, I think I'm not even going to say for their time. I think as creature designs, the the design work in Jurassic Park is very good. There's a reason it's stuck around. The, the original, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I would even go so far as to say Lost World. And and honestly, sure, like, sure, I yeah. don't, I don't, I think the Spinosaur and Pterosaur, uh, the the Pteranodon designs in three, and honestly, the, like the Raptors in Jurassic Park three are really good. Like, like they should like. Would it be nice if they were fully feathered? Yes, absolutely. But as creature designs they're full of personality they they look great they move great i have no issues with them of course the problem is that you know the the jurassic world versions of those designs is very much like a a xerox that has been xeroxed too many times and has lost some like (laughs) sort of essential fidelity um and and really that those designs very well but haven't traveled well but you know, if somebody wanted to wanted to try and like get it a classic dinosaur design that is not that, like I think that I think even for example the the dinosaur designs in the in the Peter Jackson King Kong, which are are very self consciously retro, are really fun. I think it's just like it would be nice if we weren't just getting reheat reheated rehashes of the same thing and. I would really like to see some stuff that's much more accurate. I would be fine to see some stuff that's not trying to be accurate, but is trying to evoke something different. I just don't want to see the same shit as we've been seeing for the last 30 years. I may need to censor you there, mate. Okay, please. I, 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 would, I would prefer <laughs> to see a quite a bit more diversity in the creature design and creature aesthetics than we've seen from films that are either in the shadow of Jurassic Park or you know, or, or theoretically are trying to do something different yet are, are really not managing to escape from that shadow. So there you go. Yeah. Embrace the weirdness and embrace the diversity. We have room for that. I think, I think there's <laughs> so much room for it because I think the weird thing is there's a, there, there seems to be this concept that like universal films uh, or excuse me, universal studios owns dinosaurs and they don't, they own it. You can't pitch another dinosaur film because universal's already doing it. And unfortunately, you know, 
a lot of the a lot of the other attempts at dinosaur films have been quite bad. So like uh, 65 uh. 65 but also like the good dinosaur is uh, one of the oh, is I think Gosh, I forgot that one. Well, yeah, I think most people have because it's an extremely lesser lesser Pixar offering. Um <laughs> you know, it's like I I it's one of those things where if you told me, "Oh, Pixar is going to make a dinosaur movie." I would have been like, "Oh my god, really?" And then it's like that yeah, okay. It sounds like such a great idea, doesn't it? I think I think you know something like something like Primal did a a, a neat job within its, yeah uh, within the world that it was creating, which is very like specifically uh, this sort of barbarian <laughs> story. So Primal's not exactly my cup of tea. I don't think it's bad. It's just it's just not yeah. quite my thing. But like one of the things I love yeah, about it's the, the Frazetta thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that it's very much like what if Frank Frazetta had access to the dinosaurs we have access to now. And I understand where this comes from, but like, I think it's possible for people to be a little bit killjoy about depictions of dinosaurs in media. I don't think mm-hmm. that everything needs to be super accurate. I think that there has to be space. There has to be space for weirdness in art. There has to be space for weirdness in sort of media depictions of these animals in much the same way as like, you know, the animals in The Lion King are recognizably lions, but like there are there are right. choices that are made to to sort of stylize them and, and and do different things with them. All of that is fine. But I understand why people get very, feel very strongly about this because I feel strongly about it because it sucks to have something that is just the same thing over and over. And it feels like we can't have anything different. And even the attempts within that, like one franchise mode to branch out are, you know, Steve Brusati is doing the Lord's work over there, but like he's, we're still ultimately doing Jurassic Park version of that, not, you know, someone's who's trying, who's genuinely trying to like do something different. And I just think it'd be nice to get something very different. That is true. I, uh, yeah, I, I I keep coming back to like uh, this, the strange like failure to, to bring Dinotopia to any sort of adaptation. And I mean, Dinotopia is great on its own. I'm glad we have it as it is, but there's such, fertile ground there for something that, that I feel like could be very popular that, that, that could really, could really uh, strike a chord with a lot of people and, and give, give us some, I mean, obviously the, the artwork's beautiful, but just give that diversity in, in, in storytelling that I think the three of us here and yeah many, many people in the audience would really love to see. Dinotopia is maybe a, is maybe a tricky one because it's a really incredible, adventure setting mm-hmm. and it, it I, obviously i i've loved those alan dean foster dinotopia novels um mm-hmm. although i have not revisited them in a while so i don't know maybe maybe i wouldn't like them as much yeah. if i went back but probably not like I, they're they're really fun but like it is it is the sort of thing where i can see it being sort of tricky to get past a hollywood producer you know because the thing about jurassic park is like Crichton really hit on I mean, he hit on it in with Westworld and then just like changed out like robots for for dinosaurs. But it's a very easy pitch. And I think Dinotopia is like utopian storytelling. There's dinosaurs. It's like incredible design work. There's some like, I think, really fun characters there. But like, I think in terms of like, what is the immediate thing? Like even that like Hallmark attempt was very like, oh, modern CW style boys like end up in Dinotopia, which is like. (laughs) Not really quite yeah. what that thing is. It's, you know, it's yeah. like, it's, I almost don't think the Dinotopia could survive being adapted into this yeah. media landscape. And I'm kind of, as much as I would like to see it happen, I'm kind of think like maybe we dodged a bullet by it not happening beyond the one attempt. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can respect that. <laughs> but boy, would I love to be proved wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Asher, thank you so much for talking to us. You've already gone into it a little bit, but uh, is there anything on the horizon for you in the near or far future, writing-wise, art-wise? Yeah. So in terms of uh, in terms of sort of book projects, the thing that is out now is Dinosaurs and Ancient Animals at the Big Bend. Please buy it because... Link uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Your, your friend really needs the royalties. But um, <laughs> in the sort of in the distance, I've got this this book about the paleontology, the sort of living paleontology of, of Texas, which is a book that somehow has never actually been written. Nobody's written a good like nonfiction book just about Texas paleontology generally, which is a really unaccountable hole in the market, but I'm glad it's there because I aim to fill it. Well, there you go. And the contract has been signed, so it's it's going to happen. But now I do need you to actually write it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I think you would be uh, just the guy to write it. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I, I really enjoyed coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so happy that you could. Yeah, thanks for being here. Cheers. Adios. Take it easy. I, I do want to thank uh, our listeners who um, who took part in the polls that um, Niels and I put out on social media. Um, thank you for your feedback. With regard to the material that we discuss uh, on the podcasts, to my very sincere surprise, uh, some of the answers were not what I expected. Our vintage dinosaur art remains uh, everybody's favorite, which is exactly what I expected. But yeah. um, that more people were interested in the news than in the interviews, in some cases, was a surprise to me. But basically what I'm getting at is it does help us to make what changes we feel are necessary to the content, as, as you've already been listening to in this episode, for example. Our news section is um, far more informal and doesn't necessarily contain the latest papers and findings and whatever, but just stuff that we've been up to um, because you know, that might be more interesting, perhaps. Um, I think, yeah, if people want to, there are plenty of other people on sites that, where you can get the latest scientific papers and whatnot. So us just talking about it, maybe it's not necessarily what people want to hear. I think people just prefer the interaction between the three of us, believe it or not. Also, in yeah, the voice. Well, that's it. Yeah, but um, yeah, but that would be nothing without the interaction. No. Um, we all, no, the best voices uh, will be let down by a, a terrible script and content, as we have. Uh, <laughs> Morgan <and> Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, anyway, thank you so much, listeners. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks to all three of you, especially you, Agatha. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If you're not listening to every episode twice, I'll be disappointed. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, I know there's, I know there's at least seven hundred of you. So your numbers keep going up. Well, they do. It's at least a thousand. <laughs> it's at least four thousand. There are, there are. It's uh, over nine thousand. Sort of outliers uh, uh, going up to two thousand at this moment. So <laughs> next time we podcast, we have to imagine at least seven hundred people with us in the room. Can you do it? Oh, good heavens. It's crowded. No, I can't. Imagine them naked. I, but that would only distract me the more. Oh, what are all these naked people doing here? Yeah, it depends on who some of them are. You have, you have some odd, you have some odd uh, thoughts, Niels. Well, I don't deny it. So, yeah, thank you again. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for all your feedback. Keep it coming. We uh, enjoy reading all your comments. We enjoy hearing all your thoughts. So keep sending them in. Visit us on casmosaurus.com and... Uh, do visit our Patreon because uh, Zencaster apparently isn't free anymore. I mean, I, I work for a company that charges money for a web app, so I can understand the point of view. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, I think you, you got to pay the developers. The, 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 the developers can buy large salaries, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your comments. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you again next month. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. See you. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Hasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurus.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurus and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurus. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon.